I want to let you know tonight is PG-13, verging on R, so if you are here and you are a young person uh, and you're here with your mom and dad, I want to strongly encourage you uh, that you need to look at your parents and go, hey mom, hey dad, do you want me to stay? Uh, If you're here by yourself, I want to strongly encourage you uh, to go to either the junior high or the high school, not because you couldn't hear the message tonight. Um, but it is your parents' duty, it is their role to raise you and determine when it's time for you to hear such things as you will hear both tonight and next week. And so I want you as parents to be able to make that decision. But I think it's important that we recognize that the scriptures are frank, they are bold, and sometimes even a bit controversial in dealing with the subject of human sexuality. I think it is a mistake when we allow the school districts to speak more into our lives about human sexuality than we do the Bible. And so I am going to speak on this subject very authoritatively, while I believe tastefully, and with as little information as is necessary to convey truth. But I'm not going to pull any punches. And the reason I'm not is because we live in a world that has so devalued marriage that more than 50% of all couples never get married. We live in a time when people believe that you can have sex indiscriminately with anyone you desire because your body is your body and you can do with it as you please. And while I'm speaking specifically and really only to those who hold a biblical view, who are believers, who are Christians, because that is who this letter, Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, was written, it is God's standard, and thereby, because it's God's standard, it's really everyone's standard, whether they want to recognize it or not. And so as we begin to discuss a few things tonight that are not only critically important in our time and in our culture, I want to also acknowledge that not everyone in the room tonight is married. And there are people here tonight who are not married but want to be married. There are people here tonight who probably are married and maybe are hoping that their spouse will find someone else and move on. There are people here tonight, as I will tell you, I am happily married to my wife of nearly 42 years, joyously married, and so there's a very broad swath of where people are at with regard to marriage, and because the Bible specifically confines the human sexual relationship only to marriage, this word is really for two types of people. Either people who are married or people who desire to be married. And the third, which is outside of those two groups but is similar, is those who will never get married. So the two are really in view because the context clearly is marriage. But I want to pray tonight before we get started because 
the subject matter can afflict some, it can offend some, it can enlighten, it, it can be used in a lot of different ways, and I pray tonight only for the way that the Holy Spirit would desire to speak to us as God's family. So would you join me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for those tonight who are here with us who have chosen to be single. Lord, and we ask that you would increase their gift of singleness. Lord, those who do not desire to be married and you've given them that heart, that mind. We want to pray for those who are here tonight and desire deeply and desperately to be married. And we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would give them endurance as they wait. Lord, that they would wait for the perfect one. They would not settle for less than your best. We pray that you would help them control, Lord, those hormonal desires, those thoughts which are from you. Lord, you gave us our sexuality. We ask for them that you would strengthen them and bring them that helpmate that you desire. And for the rest, Lord, those who are married tonight, God, we ask that you would open our ears, that you would cause us to hear your Spirit's voice, or really for all of us, but specifically for those who are married. God, would we fulfill all that you've called us to fulfill? Lord, help us to be wonderful husbands, amazing wives. Lord, beautiful brothers and sisters, would you use this time tonight to speak to your church? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and really tonight is kind of the introduction to the study that we'll get to next week because it's necessary to understand how these people would have understood what the Apostle Paul was talking about. And so our introduction will be fairly lengthy tonight. Verses 1 and 2, and really this forms the introduction to the uh, next eight verses that follow. And now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, and I'm reading for the, from the New Living Translation for a little bit of clarity that I believe it provides. Yes, it is good to live a celibate life. And so Paul immediately says, it is good to live a celibate life. It is not bad to live a celibate life. It is good to live a celibate life. But notice what follows. But because there is so much sexual immorality, because there is such tremendous temptation in the world then, 2,000 years ago, and it is not one lick better tonight, because there is so much sexual immorality in the world in which we live, because you are a sexual being, you were created by God as a sexual being, because you do have hormones, because you do have erogenous zones, because you were created by God for the purpose 
of multiplying on this earth and for having deep, sensual, and sexual love. I told you it was going to get a little up here tonight. That's part of God's creation, family. (laughs) He made us the way we are. Sex was not an accident. God didn't wake up and go, oh no, what have I done? I made them actually enjoy this. No, God created you that way. And because there are so many ways to abuse that which God created as good. When he created Adam and Eve, did he say, well, everything was good except the fact that I made them with erogenous zones? Except the fact that I made them actually have hormones and they think about sexual things. Man, did I mess up. No, God created everything, including your human sexuality, and he made it. Ultimately, he says of the whole creation, it was very good. Amen? Why is that important? Because you can err in a couple of different ways. You can begin to think that sex itself is bad. I've actually had Christians walk up to me and go, I can't believe they do that. And I will usually say, I can. (laughs) Why? Because God created us that way. And for the most part, it is the normal state of affairs for most human beings. But because... Each man, and I want you to notice something very specific here in the original language, man is singular. Should have his own wife. Both own is singular and wife is singular. And each, pointing towards the singular standing of what he's about to say, woman, singular, should have her own singular husband, singular. Do you get it? No ringy, no thingy. Why am I saying that? Because the Bible does. Because there's so much sexual immorality, in other words, using that which God created, which is good, for the wrong purpose in our world, God says, let anyone who's not called to be celibate, do you see it now? It's okay to be single. It's okay to be celibate. It's a good thing if you can handle it. But if you haven't, then you need to find yourself a wife or a husband and get married. Why? Because there's so much sexual immorality in our world. And you're not going to escape it. You're going to be forced to deal with those feelings. You are going to be forced to deal with those thoughts. You are going to see things that you would prefer you did not see. And so thereby, God says, the natural state of affairs for most people is get married. And get married once to one person of the opposite sex and stay married and enjoy each other. You see, we live in a world that says something very different. 
Our passage says it's okay to stay single, which, by the way, is just fine with God. It's obviously okay to get married. But what does married mean? What is marriage? Is it a piece of paper? Is it a binding legal contract? It is some organizational thing that happens because the state says we have to. So when it doesn't work out, we can equitably divide property along lines of fairness. What is marriage? Is cohabitating the same thing? You see, there's an assumption in these first two verses that we need to come to terms with. And the assumption is that whoever the Bible's talking to, they know what marriage actually is. Can I tell you, our world hasn't got a clue. You want proof of that? Read the news media. Watch television. Watch movies. There's a reason that Fifty Shades of Smut has made so much money. I don't pick on everybody universally, so don't worry about it. There's a reason. Because we have so devalued marriage. There's a reason that now two men, two women can get married. There's a reason. Because marriage itself has been devalued. Because we no longer have an understanding of what God intended when he created us in the first place. And so it, in essence, goes back to our understanding of the book of Genesis. Because God defined what marriage is. I did a little bit of research these last couple of weeks. We have had in the last couple of years people marry a wall, marry a dog, Marry a cat. God only knows why someone would do that. We have had a person marry their library. We have had a person marry God himself through a celestial marriage. We had a person marry some aliens that they met who abducted them. Do you understand what I'm saying, family? We don't have a clue in our culture. We have defined marriage as, well, I'll stay with you as long as I want to. That's not what your Bible says. It's not what it teaches. It is not even the intent of marriage that you be together for sex. Did you know that? It's not the primary function of marriage. So as God defines it, what does he do? What did God do? If you were with us almost a year ago now in our study in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and I want to look at this just very briefly. Verse 27, Genesis chapter 1, so God created man in his own image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And then in my translation, with all their anatomical differences that are ordained by God, parts of which have no purpose except for pleasure. That's the JG nearly inspired version. God created, God built, God ordained, God put us together as men and women. And he did so very, very, very wonderfully. And so be careful that you don't dismiss the creator by dismissing the creation or making the creation, which he said was very good, into something that's somehow bad. Because some people do exactly that. So why did God then bless them, tell them to be fruitful and multiply, What happens next in chapter 2 is a key component part to this. And it complements what happens in chapter 1. Chapter 2 and in verse 18 it says this. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. If you've ever been to a bachelor's pad, you know that's truth, straight up truth. In Jesus' name. Men left to their own devices, not good. It's not that we can't clean house, not that we can't cook. It's not that we don't do those things. But when we are left alone, we get in trouble. We think of dumb, stupid things. And we usually come, become less than productive. God, knowing that because he created us, says it's not good that men should live alone. It actually says it's not good that mankind should live alone, so make sure your translation is correct. Though the focus is Adam, it's really speaking about Eve who is to come. Out of the ground God formed every beast, every bird of the air. Brings Adam to see what he would call them. And then verse 20, And so Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, but for Adam... There was not found a helper comparable to him. Now, this is where a little bit of understanding of the Hebrew language is very, very, very important to understanding this passage. Not that you can't understand it in English, but these words have a little greater meaning in Hebrew than they do in English, and so let me help you with that. Not found a helper, an easer, comparable, connectable. And so this word in Hebrew means an equal yet opposite and perfectly complementary match or a completion. So it doesn't just say made some royal hotness for him. Doesn't say found someone who could cook. Doesn't say good thing she had a nice fishing boat send photos of the motor. It says, but for Adam, there was not a person who is of an equal stature to him, yet is totally opposite from him, who is perfectly complete, who will make Adam 100% when they are, as we will see later in the passage, joined, cleaved, or more importantly, if you love gorilla glue, 
glued together. The Bible's intent of marriage is to take someone who's not good at being alone and bring someone alongside who is equal and opposite in virtually everything that one is lacking, the other one is good, and then take them and place them together so that once they are glued together, those bonds cannot be broken because if you do, you will destroy both. That's a little different than Adam found his royal hotness. Amen? Or Adam finally found somebody who said, whoa, she's good looking. You see, your Bible paints a very specific picture of what God ordained in the very first two chapters of the Bible as marriage. And it is that that is in view. It is not the world's understanding of marriage. Man, you burned my toast again. I'm out. (laughs) Honey, those six extra ounces you just gained, you gotta go. You know what I'm saying? Tell me I'm not right. Because I've sat down with hundreds of people and listened to their excuses like this. My husband doesn't make enough money. I'm leaving him. I'd like for you to find that verse in the Bible for me. Now, I'm not saying you husbands should not try and earn as much money as you can. But marriage is not so two people can accumulate wealth so that when one of them gets tired of the other, they both have something. Right now, I'm messing with everybody's head. You see, I want us to get this right. Because if you're married for some other reason, the basic reason for marriage is completion. And underlying that is a deep, abiding, transcending companionship, a friendship like no other. And so that's where the Apostle Paul starts. It's not for sex alone. It's not for procreation. It is not physical. Though the physical relationship is a part, a wonderful part, a beautiful part, and even an essential part of a healthy marriage. It is by no shake of the imagination the only part, and it is not even the most important part, but that is exactly what is being told to virtually everyone in our country that the most important part of marriage is your sexual compatibility. If that's your view of marriage, let me prophesy over you, your marriage won't last. It will not last. Why? Because God didn't design you that way. God didn't make you that way. He made sex a part of your marriage relationship. He did not make sex your whole marriage relationship. You see, Paul's getting it right here when we have so much of the world getting it wrong. And that's why the term here for God is Yahweh or Jehovah Elohim. 
That means he's the Lord, he's the master, and he's God. He's creator God, but he's also the one who calls the shots. I think it is important that we realize that we can err in a bunch of different ways here. And so I want to take just a moment, a subject we'll cover in a number of chapters. You see, you have the legalists. You have those who are what I like to call the licensed libertine, the person that believes that they kind of sort of the Bible's a book of good suggestions. You have the legalist who takes everything hardcore right down the line and says, well, if you deviate, you're dead. Kind of a fatalistic view. And then you have true biblical liberty. And we have to get this right. We have to get it balanced. We have to take the misunderstanding out of it because there is such a thing as true biblical liberty. But you can also err on the, on the side of legalism. It's just like, man, well, I'm just going to, you know, it's like super rigid and fatalistic. And if everything isn't perfect, then, well, you know, God's not in this. Look, if you're one of those people, if you're a legalist, you're going to be miserable. And if you're a libertine, you're going to find out that you were miserable after everything falls apart because it didn't fulfill. As Paul's already said, all things are lawful for me. Paul understands that we have tremendous liberty in Christ. But that liberty is bound up by the construction of God himself. And so God says, look, this is what I have in view. And I want you to walk in it because it's best for you. It's the right thing. So many people look at the law of God, they look at the moral code of God, and they go, well, you know, he's just a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want me to experience these wonderful things that obviously everyone else is doing. No, he knows that those things will destroy you. And so he says, No sexual immorality. That means if you're not married, the amount of sex that you can have is zero of any kind. Of any kind. Doesn't matter what flavor it is. You can't have any. So Paul says to those people who aren't okay with that, your remedy is find your spouse and get married. And then enjoy the beauty of a fully functioning, wonderful, absolutely glorious sexual relationship. But if you're not married, then you have two choices. You can either stay unmarried and rejoice in it, be used of the Lord, or you need to begin to seek that person to whom God wants you to be married and get married. There's no in-between. I have sat down and talked with so many people who, who have ruined their lives because their life has been filled with test wife or test husband, one through 57 inclusive. And now they haven't got a clue. They don't know what God's called them to, to do. Don't know what God's called them to be. Because there is so much comparative analogy that goes on in their head that they would never know their spouse if they actually bumped into them. 
So God says, don't do that. It's not good for you. Now, can I stop for a moment and tell you, praise God for grace. Amen? Amen? He's got grace for the failed relationship. He's got grace for the failed marriage. He's got grace for everything. But make no mistake, he has a perfect plan for your life. Don't miss out on that. Do not trade for what's behind door number two, okay? He wants you to take what's behind your door number one. You you see, those during Paul's day and time thought that, you know, even in marriage, perhaps they should just stay sexless. Well, I'll never mess up if I never have sex. Can I tell you, that's not working. It's not going to happen. The libertine person says, well, you know, if it really doesn't matter, then maybe if I just have as many partners as I possibly can have, then I'll even be better off than the guy who has one or none. That's not going to work either. Because both those things are outside of God's plan. When you're at the Bible college, it seemed like every other guy I talked to would say something along the lines, well, you know, in the Old Testament, they were polygamists. And I said, yep, you're right. Now I want you to find anyone who is a happy polygamist. And they... You know what they found out? Disaster! Because you know what, guys? We aren't very good at being the husband of one wife. Amen? You ain't doing it with two. Amen? Not happening. Told you, I want to be real with you guys. Too many pastors dance around this stuff. Oh, somebody, you know, they might hear a word. Look, you heard the word getting on a bus yesterday. How about, how about I as a pastor tell you the truth? Is that okay with you guys? So you've got to get balanced between this position of hyper-legalism that says, well, we'll just abstain and, you know, I'll just not do anything. And then the other side which says, well, it doesn't really matter. It's just your physical body and that's not going to heaven right now anyway. Got to wait for the resurrection. You make all kinds of mental excuses and spiritual excuses for why you can do whatever you want to do. You can't have either of those two extreme positions. You need to be back down the middle someplace. So Paul says, look, I'm not giving you just a rule, don't do this or don't do that. I'm telling you this is what you were created for. This is how God made you. You know, too many people will sit there and try and justify, well, you know, uh, we use protection, so there's no possible possibility that I'm going to become pregnant. I've actually had Christians say that to me. God doesn't care that you're having safe sex. God cares that you're married. God's basically saying, look, no is the amount that you get to have before the ring. Zero. All of the things that that led to the sexual revolution of the 60s is the we now have abortion legalized because of it. And again, if you're here tonight, let me speak 
Maybe there are some of you ladies tonight who are here and you've had an abortion. Can I tell you God's grace is sufficient for you? And he loves you. And he can redeem all that the moth has eaten and the rust has corroded in your life. So please don't be condemned because his grace is sufficient. But we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking, well, you know, I can always do that. No, from God's view, that's still the death of an unborn child. It's not some form of birth control. It is not a fetus. It is a human being uniquely designed by God. It has its own set of chromosomes that were recombined between the man and the woman's DNA. It is a specific life that now resides within the womb of someone else. And in nine months, it will no longer live there. It will come outside. So please, let's not look at it like this is just, well, you know, it's the best I can do. No, the best you can do is find a husband who loves you, who wants to stay with you the rest of your days in thick and thin, in sickness and in health, richer or poorer. He will be with you when you are dying from cancer. Ladies, you're more valuable to God than that. Don't sell yourself short. Men, you have no right to touch someone else's wife. Let me speak directly to you. You can't do it. It's not okay with God. That woman is your sister if she were a believer. She belongs to God. And we must begin to tell the truth to our children because they are believing the lie. Because we're not living it before them. This is the real deal here. And I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm trying to give you a righteous zeal for the things of the Lord. So that you see it the way God sees it. So that you understand it from his perspective. And again, let me return to his grace. His all-sufficient grace. His grace that is greater than all of my sin. But make no mistake, don't choose to sin. Don't choose to do what God tells you not to do. Because it has a tremendous price. And you will pay it. There's some really hard questions here. Paul's saying, look, this is, this is extreme. This is a tough subject. You know, some people treat sex like smoking. I had a guy come to me one time. You know, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it 50 times. <laughs> I looked at him. I said, do you see the failed logic here? People treat sin in their lives that way. It's like, well, I can quit anytime I want. It's just I don't want to quit. Sin has a price. And let me tell you something. The enemy never tells you the price before you buy. The enemy never tells you the price before you buy. He says, 
It's worth it. And then you find out you bought a lemon. This isn't what you thought. But the consequences are now out of your control. Paul's going to discuss a bunch of things going forward in the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's super powerful for us to know these things. And if you're here tonight and you're walking with the Lord and your marriage is good, you have been called to teach this stuff to your children. You've been called to give counsel to people when they come to you and say, hey, should I move in with my boyfriend, my girlfriend? Moms and dads, would you please have enough guts to look your children in the eye and say, that's not what God has for you. It may be what you want to do. You may feel right about it. But if I had a nickel for every time somebody told me, well, I felt good in my heart about it, and they lived long enough to pay the price of that sin, I, I, we could like build hospitals all over the world. We've been called by God to be a holy people, a righteous people, a people who honor God above all things. And we got to start living that way. Because I don't know how much time our world has. On the current path, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. I'm, I'm sitting here watching some of these stars and starlets. Actors all. They're on their third, fourth, fifth husband, and they're not 30 years old yet. I remember back when I was younger, you know, some of us guys, you know, we've been around long enough. You remember when Elizabeth Taylor played Cleopatra? This long string, and and she, for a time, held the Guinness World Record for the number of husbands at nine. Oh, it's been beaten many times over. She's miserable. She died miserable. None of them satisfied. Thrill can kill, folks. So these questions that Paul asks, well, what about a celibate life? Here's how crazy it was then. And I have listened to this. I have heard this exact story from two pastors. And so here's what happened. Well, we'll just not get married. Now that side, for some people, is a calling to celibacy. To live a sexless Completely sexless, by the way, and that includes self-sex. I do not need to describe what I'm talking about there. That means zero sex. Unless you can do self-sex without lusting. I'm pretty sure that's not actually going to happen for most people. So that's one. Two, and this was going on in Corinth. Well, I'm married to an unbeliever. 
Matter of fact, I married the Wicked Witch of the West. I actually am married to Satan himself. If you look up the word jerk in the dictionary, it has a picture of my husband. And he doesn't want to go to church. Matter of fact, on Sunday, he actually cusses more than normal. And so the Christians then were saying this. Well, I'll just dump him and find a godly man. Brothers and sisters, I have ministered to two pastors who looked this pastor in the eye and said, and I quote, God told me to leave my wife. And I said, that wasn't God. That was straight from the pit of hell, and you were listening to Satan, not God. You know why I know that? Malachi chapter 2 says, and I quote, I, the Lord God, hate divorce, for it covers one's life with bloodshed. It is an abomination unto me. God is never for what God is against. Do you understand what I'm saying? Scripture is clear on this family. God's perfect will is never, even when it's justified, do you understand what I'm saying? Even when Scripture makes allowance for, God still hates divorce. All divorce, 100%. Now again, praise God for his all-sufficient grace. Amen? He he is the gracious God who even covers our mistakes, our blown marriages, ultimately with the garment of praise, but he still hates it. Why? Because his word is true and every man a liar. It covers one's life with a garment uh, of death. It destroys. Divorce destroys. It always destroys. Oh, it may be the best thing that you can think of at the time, but there's a price to pay. And so God says, I hate it. So the people then were going, well, you know, if I just get rid of this unspiritual person, I could be spiritual. Can I tell you something? The problem's not them, it's you. The problem's not them, it's you. You have a problem. Because if you think that God is going to approve of you doing something he hates so that you can find someone more spiritual, you're sadly mistaken. Back to the original design for God. One man, one woman for life. And so what he wants is you to fix that broken relationship. What he wants is abiding kindness. What he wants is long-suffering. What he wants is for your godliness to win him to Christ. He does not want for you to leave that to whom he has told you to cleave. The people then were saying, well, I'll just get a better husband. I'll just get a better wife. Then I'll be able to do better for the Lord. No. Neither are sinful the sexual human relationship, and neither is God instituting some kind of holy divorce here. He's saying if you're married, stay married. 
And so he says, regarding these questions, is sex actually sinful or is it godly? And obviously, as we've said, it's godly. It's very godly. In fact, designed by God. It was Paul's answer. It's God's answer. Because there's so much sexual immorality, find your spouse, get married, and stay married. And enjoy each other. It's a beautiful thing. It will not do for those who have not been called by God to attempt to live celibate lives. And I'm going to say something that's going to probably maybe offend a few. Look, the monastic life has been tried before. Trying to flee from that which God has made us because he has made virtually every person desirous of physical human contact sexually. Not everyone, because Scripture says that there are some called the celibacy. It is good for a man to not touch a woman. It's good. And if that's you, God bless you. And I mean that very sincerely and wholeheartedly. Because you can do things that I as a married man cannot. On this earth, my first, my first ministry is to my bride. So because I am a married man, I have an obligation that is front and center above every obligation, including this church, by the way, including all of you. If I cannot be the husband I'm supposed to be to my bride, Connie, then I have no business up here. Because that's my preeminent relationship on this earth. So I must do that well. And I still got some growth. And I've been practicing for 42 years. <laughs> Almost. Y- you see, what other people say, well, I just, you know, I'll just force myself to be celibate. Ask the Catholic Church if that works. And I'm not bashing anybody, I'm drawing attention to a fact. The Catholic Church has paid out four billion with a B dollars in sexual abuse claims in the last ten years. Four billion dollars. Homosexual, heterosexual, and pedophilia. Because priests have to take a vow of celibacy. But they were not called, nor were they created by God celibate. God's word is right. And we can make up all the rules in the world in the church. And while I believe there are many who love the Lord and are celibate, you can't make that a requirement. Which is why the Bible says that a man who desires the office of bishop must be the husband of just one wife. And in fact, the Apostle Paul is a member of the Sanhedrin, at least at some point in time in his life, had to be married because it's a requirement to be in the Sanhedrin. Can I tell you something, ladies, about men? Bury us in a cargo container in the Kalahari Desert, we can still think about girls. 
most of us. Not all of us, but most of us. Why? God made us that way. It's in our DNA. We were designed by God. And it's a blessing. You see, all celibacy is not holy. And neither is sex outside of marriage. Sex outside of marriage is not okay with God. Ever. Praise God for his grace. You see, the Bible says sex within marriage is a fit for your biology, for your psychology, for your physiology, for your social sociology. It's a fit for most of us. But only as God constructed it. Anywhere else, it's dangerous. Anywhere else, the gift of singleness is what's supposed to be in view for us. While we're waiting for marriage, singleness is what God has for us. Not, not testing prospective spouses. When Connie and I got married, I don't know if she remembers this or not, but our pastor at the time, Dr. Nosworthy, Dr. Thomas Nosworthy, fine Oxford accent, you know. He and his wife, Nora, had spent 20 years ministering in what was still then the Congo. And he came out of the mission field, he and his bride, to pastor our church that we were going to. And I think he was actually a little shocked that we were going to get married, mostly that I was going to get married. But we did a couple of premarital counseling sessions, and he gave me a book written in 1901. This was 1976 by Francis Gordon Fain called The Way of a Man with a Maid. And I read through that book, and as I got started, I'm like, I'm not getting much out of this because it's in the King's English, for, for one. But I got to the part that you were only supposed to have sex with your wife when you wanted to have a child. And I thought, well, that's kind of limiting. (laughs) You see, because that book, though it was given to me by a godly man, was not biblically accurate. And we'll get into the remainder of this study next week. But you see, he was a tremendous man of God. And I know he loved the Lord. But because this subject was tough to talk about, he handed me a book that wasn't theologically correct. It was easier to go here than it was to sit down and talk. And the reason that I'm sharing this with you is I was listening to J. Vernon McGee shortly before he went home to be with the Lord. He had spoken at a pastor's conference And there was a pastor's panel, as we often do at pastor's conferences. We'll get a number of us pastors, much like we're going to be doing on Sunday night. We'll we'll get the pastors up there and we'll just, you know, take questions. 
And so here is 82-year-old J. Vernon McGee and a 20-something-year-old man stands up and he says, so Dr. McGee, when did you get, uh, get a handle on your sexuality so that you don't any longer desire to look at women? And he said, that serious is a heart attack. I'm counting on it when I get to heaven. Kind of tells you something about people, doesn't it? To deny that is to deny that it's your own peril. To deny that is to put yourself in harm's way. Of course there's grace for the person who desires to be single. And God can help you be single. And you can do it with joy and with zeal. But if you haven't been called, and you know how you're going to know that you're not called? Because you're constantly in turmoil over your sexual life. There, there's desire that's going unmet. You're, you're having thoughts that are supposed to be directed towards your spouse, but you don't have a spouse. If that's you, and it's constant, and it's prevalent, and there's, there's been no release from that position in your life, then almost assuredly God has called you to be married. And so you need to begin to pray and ask God to show you who that person is. Hebrews 13, 4. And I'll end with this. Because God invented sex. And he made it very good. He made it part of your biology. He made it part of your physiology. He's made it part of our collective sociology. In other words, we as as humankind, as a group. That's why these types of talks between me and you and us together are very important. Because if we don't do it here, I'll tell you where you're going to see it. On the billboard as you drive on the freeway. TV programs, magazines, movies, the radio, sporting events. Guys, let me just be honest with you. Those cheerleaders are not not on the side of the football field so that they can whip the crowd into a frenzy. They are there to sexually entice the players so that their hormones are off the charts so when they go back out on the field, they're ready to kill someone. Don't kid yourself. Get real with your sexuality. Don't let the devil use it against you. You let God use it to bless you in its proper context because marriage is honorable in all and the bed is undefiled in marriage. In other words, it's good. It's wonderful. But that's the only place that it's wonderful. Everywhere else, it's going to come with a price and you don't want to pay it. It will not give you what you're seeking. Because what God ingrained into your very DNA is a deep and desirous, abiding relationship to be loved and cared for and completed and and ministered to and, and to have someone who will stick with you through thick and through thin and be there 
every single day, regardless of whether you come home in a good mood or a bad mood or whether things are wonderful or not so wonderful, God created marriage chiefly for deep companionship. He he created sex as the frosting on the cake. No one sits down. Well, most of us don't sit down and try and have just a cake made out of all frosting. It isn't even good. But a little bit of the right kind of frosting, really good. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the patience of your people to listen and to hear. And I pray that you would speak into our lives right now. God, those areas where you're trying to maneuver us away from things that could harm us. And Lord, I again just ask for those who maybe tonight are struggling. God, there's, there's, there's an area in their life where they're open and they're vulnerable. Lord, maybe they're in a relationship right now and they know it's not of you. God, thank you that you're, you're a kind God, a gracious God, that your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, you're not here in this place to condemn. The world through sin's already condemned. You've come to save. And I pray that if there's anyone here tonight that's in bondage, Lord, they're in bondage to their sexuality. But you would speak a word of love into their lives right now to set them free. Lord, to see these things in the right and proper way, your way. Lord, we bless you for what you've done tonight. And we pray, God, where we are astray, that you would bring us back right into the center of your perfect will. Lord, thank you for the gift that you've given us of marriage. Again, we pray for those that want to be married tonight. Lord, please, 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 please pour out upon them a spirit of grace and love and care and concern and bring them, Lord, someone to be their completion. Lord, for those that have marriages that are astray, they're broken, they're hurting, God, would you bind those wounds? Or would you tenderly caress their marriage and make it into the the loving place that spells you, Jesus, to the world? God, we thank you tonight for your voice in our lives and pray that you would bless us, Lord. Bless all of the marriages represented here tonight. I thank you for my bride, Lord the one who completes me. Lord, without her, I surely would have perished a long time ago. And so, Lord, I thank you for her. God, would you bless us as your church? Would we be a a fountain that people can run to of living water springing forth into this world, telling people the truth so that they would not believe the lie? We love you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.